everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to ask what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking and chatting about teaching vets and vet, vet nurses during a global pandemic and the challenges that obviously that has and chatting to Laura Kidd about her experiences of the veterinary profession. In our clinical segment we're going to be chatting with the lovely Liz about hypercalcemia and the emergency management of that condition. To introduce myself, my name is Scott, I'm one of the founders of ETX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. As always, I'm joined by my wonderful friend and podcast producer, Karen. Right, so hi Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I feel like we've been organising this for a long time and finally we've got around to it, so that's good. Um, I wanted just to start um, by maybe you just introducing yourself a little bit. Um, always interested to know when and where people graduated from and things like that. So I don't know if you're okay to start. Sure, okay. Well, I was received an email this morning to from somebody saying that this was to a fogey, an old fogey vet. So I think that kind of sums it up from the outset. Um, I'm a nice. very, <laughs> although I'm very happy to to go with that title. I'm okay. a Glasgow Vet School graduate, a very proud Glasgow Vet School graduate of 1988. Um, and having graduated, lived in the West and um, graduated in the West, um, I moved through to Edinburgh for my first job and have never quite escaped. Um, and I started in a small animal, companion animal practice, whatever we call it. Um, I was there full time for five or six years and then had child number one and went back to that practice full time, uh, sorry, part time, um, a couple of days a week. And I think was feeling a little bit popper like and I just happened to bump into you know the way life works out I happened to bump into somebody as I was dropping bloods off at the dick vet which is where we did all our our lab work and mention was made of some doing some vet nursing lecturing um and having said no at peace um but then went away and thought about it so I thought well that's something I could do and it's cut a very long story short um I then started doing some vet nurse lecturing alongside my clinical work um and have never quite stopped that um and I've loved my teaching and kept on going in 2014 I moved from clinical practice um more to the vets now role and I also started teaching clinical skills at the Dick Vet in Edinburgh so now I <laughs> juggle my three teaching roles largely and do odds and sods of clinical work I'd like to do more but I've got a funny neck which makes my arm a bit numb and also not very much time not very much time so can I can I ask just from a just from a kind of from my own so where were you did you grow up in Glasgow I was Kilmacombe oh so, nice wow. yes 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 just west of glasgow oh we're all westies that's nice yes yeah west is west <laughs> yeah exactly yes. so um yeah so karen and i obviously we we went to school together in glasgow actually oh, so that's how we okay. know each other right. so um but well karen grew up in bearsden and i grew up in kirk and Tillich, not quite oh, as right. fancy sure, as sure. kilmacombe and bearsden <laughs> i had lots of friends oh, no. <laughs> i had lots of friends there but didn't ever get to live there but anyway <laughs> um so yeah so i um one of the first things like so so much there to talk I think I really wanted to talk about the teaching but actually a really interesting perspective that you will have on that as far as kind of the situation we're now in with coronavirus and I think one of the things I really wanted to talk about was we've spent so much time with people on here talking about how coronavirus and the current situation has affected vets in practice and I think it's safe to say across the board overall quite negative you know so mm-hmm. quite difficult yeah. but I think and and that's a common theme what I think we've not really touched on 
is actually what effect this is having on the poor vet students, vet nurse students who are trying to forge their way at this point. And it, it almost makes me a bit sad because what should be like a really exciting time in your life where you're maybe getting to the end of this qualification and you want to go out into the world, but you're faced with this other pressure. And I don't, is that something that you have been aware of in your role? I think there's, I must say, as a teaching vet, I feel a bit of a fraud compared to the frontline vets who are in clinical practice in terms of the challenges, because, you know, I think they, like the doctors and the nurses, are the ones that are having the real, real hard work. Um, from the vet students' point of view, we've done some, we've had some really great remote teaching, and some of that, you know, I, I think there's definitely some really positive stuff that's come out of that and things like that that might continue. A big move to obviously online, which I think has been really, really hard work for everybody, but largely just about as positive as it as it can be. For us, you know, anything we've done teaching wise and certainly any, you know, uh, I think initially you kind of think, oh, you know, it's kind of that um, slight sort of sunken heart feeling where things are not going to be the same as they were. I think we just we do just adapt. You know, I think the only thing I would say, though, as a profession, I feel that we're quite used to kind of getting together I think we quite and we quite like to get together <laughs> um and whether that's at a conference yeah, or yeah. Uh, you know with any of these sorts of things I do still think there is a I don't know what other professions are like but I think we are particularly sociable I would agree from the social point of view definitely sort of missing things like so London Vets too I was, was one of the uh, and the Vets Now Congress of course was all remote this year and from an educational point of view it was way better yeah <laughs> because I attended way more lectures because you could do. And you weren't hungover. <laughs> exactly. So there was no distractions. There was nobody to stop and have a quick cup of coffee. Yeah, that's so, funny. You know, definitely yeah. I came away feeling cleverer, but, you know, that element of bumping into friends that I wouldn't, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily get to see or make, I mean, I've made so many new friends by attending congresses and things in the in the past. Mm. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree from from that point of view um it's i think that's particularly particularly vet no but particularly vets now congress which i, I attended for years i think because it almost became just an opportunity for the whole company to get <laughs> yeah. together most of the people staying up very late were just vets now employees <laughs> so i think you know um so actually yeah so that we've come away i love that we've come away this year um, less drunk but more intelligent when it comes to congresses. Indeed, indeed. Yes, I know. But and I've made so many co uh, made new contacts over the years by just being at these, you know, which a nice new friends, but also fantastic from a teaching point and learning point of view because there's always somebody that I can, if I'm not entirely sure, I can message somebody that I've met um, and got to know in that respect. Yeah. Do you think, um, as far as kind of looking at your when you first graduated from Glasgow Vet School in 1980? 19 did you say did you say 80 sorry I didn't want to I didn't want to like a million years ago no no, no I didn't want because... to under or over represent you but um do you was would would you ever have kind of seen your career develop in this sort of way no no 100 million percent no I've never been I must say I've never been that person that's been very good at seeing much beyond sort of two weeks hence anyway so there was two no <laughs> yeah there, there was no two career plan and 
I don't know when I think in my generation it was very much you went to vet school you graduated you were going to be a vet and there wasn't kind you know there was mm. the odd person in the year that was going to be the business person and there was the odd person that was going to do research but for me I was going into practice I think originally I was going to be an equine vet but life changed that's you know that was about as far as I went but would I have anticipated being where I am now not at all um would I have had it any other way absolutely not I've you know mm. I've just loved it and I think that is my big sort of take home to everybody don't close any doors you know um, yeah. open to anything that there's a whole kind of side of the profession that's kind of geared up to that exact attitude now like it's amazing how what I'm referring to is obviously Vetstego Diversify you know is one example of an organization where they're saying to you look it doesn't have to be one set way mm-hmm. and what I think is really interesting actually when I'm thinking of just about my own sort of choices even more currently I'm thinking about you sort of saying Um, So I split myself between these three positions, but I actually wonder whether for a lot of us, dividing your, your, your time between different roles in many ways is actually maybe a really healthy way to be. I, I can see that there are challenges because you're, you want to make sure that you're just not doing full time three times three, which, which I'm sure is one of the things you have to kind of work on. But for instance, actually, um, I have, uh, taken a bit of time or, or reduced my hours in, in private clinical practice and actually funnily enough have been doing some locum at Glasgow University Vet School um, so I'm there I've, I've been there over the last few few months which has been I'm honestly amazing and I'm, I'm not a Glasgow graduate so I don't have I don't have the same allegiance but I've absolutely loved absolutely loved it um, and actually do you know what that division of time with the different pressures in different places has been kind of actually just what I've needed so maybe that's a a very modern and forward you th- forward thinking way of working I would agree I think there's an awful lot to be said for it I mean it's a bit chaos at time and you can guarantee that whatever, however many jobs you've got they've all got big deadlines all at the same time and then maybe there's a slack period all at the same time but I think about it a lot because I do you know at some stage in my life I won't necessarily be working these hours um and which would I cut back on and I, I really struggle to know because the Vets Now job, the emergency and critical care, I've learned so much by tutoring on that that I've then taken to my teaching um, to teach. Gosh, I'd have been such a better new graduate if I'd done teaching first because I've learned so much anatomy and physiology by having to teach the vet, the student vet nurses. Um, and then that really helps with the, the vet students, you know, so they all kind of interlink with each other. And yeah, um, and I, I'm, I'm sad I can't do a little bit more clinical because I think that the marrying up of the way you are just now of clinical stuff and teaching is just the perfect combination it really it really is and actually one of, and actually one of the things I find um I it totally is that actually doing a bit of teaching or, or any teaching or, or any CPD which I do a lot of it really forces you to keep yourself up mm. to date and, and it really forces you to be at the forefront of your own yep. knowledge and I, I love that actually because I love being kept on my toes in that yeah, sort of no, way likewise. and I don't know what you th- I don't know what you find and I, I, I students I think vet vet students vet nurse students are challenging just in the right kind of way and I think I've been made to think so differently about a lot of things over the last few you know in clinical practice I, I do what I do no one really questions mm-hmm. me is that really arrogant no. they don't yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I just go oh, you know but you know the, but that's but suddenly they're like yeah but hold on a minute and I'm like yeah um let me just get back I, uh-huh. I've done so many fa- fat check moments yeah. you know like a 
Um, let me just get back to you on that. Yeah. I have absolutely no idea. I do it because I know it works. Um, <laughs> isn't that as terrible? No, no, that was that was one of the first tips I was taught. If you were at, because I mean, of course, like the first lecture I was to do, I said I was petrified in advance. And a more experienced colleague said, well, don't worry, A, you will know, even if you don't know very much, you will know more than everybody else in the room. But if you get asked a question that you don't know the answer to, you kind of either say, oh, that's an interesting point. Let's all mm. reconvene. <laughs> yes. Let's... Or we just fess up. I don't know the answer, yeah. but let's all go and find out together. Gosh, isn't that an interesting question? I think the worst thing is when people can't admit that they don't know, which is, I think, sad because actually it makes you much more human and normal just to be like, well, I don't actually know, so let me just yeah. find out. And I think yeah. that's, it makes you so much more relatable. Mm -hmm. One of the things, so Andy and I were talking, um, of course it does. Very yeah. specifically, actually, this week about nurse teaching. And we are, so Andy, my husband, who's a vet nurse, uh, who actually was taught by Laura, that's, here we go, full circle. School years ago, yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, so he, uh, we were talking about some material we were designing for, mm. for nurses. And we're, so we're designing these nurse courses, right? Yeah. Um, and we're doing an, an like an advanced version of the nurse course we're running just now. And he was asking me about who, who, first of all, what material should we cover and who should be delivering this material? Mm -hmm. And then it got down to this really in interesting conversation about, well, well, that's a really good question. What role do nurses have in teaching nurses? What role do vets have in teaching nurses? Do you think it's difficult or easy for a vet to teach a nurse something or do you think that's okay? Obviously you do and obviously you do it very well. But what I mean is, are there certain things that, only nurses can teach nurses and only vets can teach nurses or whichever way around oh, you want really, to really really good question I would certainly never pretend I think it's really important that we know the complete difference between the 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 professions um and I yes I will happily teach student vet nurses anatomy and physiology and how to x-ray and so on and so forth um <laughs> I have been teased for a million years about things like instruments because, of course, I haven't a clue what this instrument is and that instrument is. So I'm not going to pretend to do that type of thing. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think probably anybody can technically teach anything if they put the effort in and have the understanding and the knowledge. But, yeah, I and there are certain things I am in my comfort zone as a vet and happy to teach to vet nurses and vet students, student vet nurses and student um, vets. There are certain things that I think might be better by vet nursing colleagues that are better in their subject but I suppose that there's you know again I'm not going to try and start teaching orthopedics to to vet students well or to bare minimum orthopedics when there's going to be a better place veterinary surgeon to do it so I suppose it's about knowing what your skills are um, and what you're keen on I mean things that I love then I will teach forever to to whoever but uh, if it's a subject that I'm a bit like disinfectants and antiseptics for example I'm not plumbing clue uh, oh no we do care done. oh sorry we do care we do care <laughs> exactly particularly um, <laughs> just don't yeah, drink but, them like Trump said <laughs> exactly but is that about being a vet or a nurse or is that just about the topic that interests you uh, well yeah I mean that's I think that's the point isn't it like what uh, for 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 me they're just um when it comes to the anatomy and physiology and the and the disease processes, we're all coming from the same direction. So I suppose it's it you know yeah, it, it's, yeah, yeah. we didn't make that up. It was you know that's been found out before, and we're just you know we're we're just relaying that information. Sure. I think for me the biggest sort of difference is when it comes down to some of those actually in the clinic skills, which I think vets just miss and and I think that's where the nuances start to come in isn't it where the 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 actual kind of cage side nursing of the patients and the and the relationship with them is it, that's when things start to get you know can get very different and the one thing I would never um 
want anyone to ask me to do for instance is put on a bandage like I always felt nurses were so much better at doing stuff like that like oh my god and actually you're saying about x-rays but I wouldn't even know where to start about where to position but anyway so we definitely we'd need to pull on our, our strengths and um, for sure yeah in the so I hate to I don't want to I don't want to mention like um time scales again but no, no. in your your vast um levels of experience what can you pick a, like a couple of key things that are like key things that you've seen change in the profession over this time that you've been doing this oh that's good yeah well I suppose and um, obviously we more uh, advances in terms of diagnostics um just generally um and way more treatment options for many things which I think in some respects it obviously improves things massively from a from a patient welfare point of view I think from a vet point of view practicing that's where some of the challenges can come because basically when I was you know as a new grad for many years you didn't have very many options and you saw the patient you x-rayed them or you didn't x-ray them because that's all we could do you gave them medicine one or medicine two because that's all you could do can I guess what those medicines are yeah go on (laughs) So that would that be antibiotics and steroids? <laughs> Penelope, yes. Sometimes Sarah, and occasionally we had finadine. Um, so okay. yeah, yeah. So obviously, way way better. But I think, from my personal point of view, the longer I was in practice, it was great. The the, the more options, but also the more my head couldn't quite cope with what I had to work out, what I had to explain to a client in in less time, maybe. I'm not again not downplaying the profession at any stage in its timeline but I think you're right like I suppose actually being able to do more in many ways new graduates now are under a lot more pressure to understand in different levels of detail that maybe does put on a bit of extra sort of pressure you know I don't yeah um obviously the, the world changes in lots of different ways one of the things we talk about a lot, and, and it's maybe hard to, to say this, but we talk a lot about the kind of um, the pressures that, that the pr- profession puts on us generally and the way that people within the profession suffer in lots of different ways with with mental health and burnout and, well, all these sorts of things, which I think we can all, we all probably, you know, understand in some degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has that actually changed or do we just talk about it more? I don't know. That's that's what I would wonder. Do we talk? I mean, we certainly do talk about it. And yeah, I mean, there's definitely, definitely pressures. There's no two ways about it. Where things have changed is clients maybe have, having more access to things like the internet and, you know, us feeling more under pressure because we know that maybe clients might know things that we don't know and, and what have you. But I, I don't know. It makes me, I mean, one of the things I'm very lucky, I think I was a vet, very privileged when I graduated and I, you know, I have got no complaints about my career other than occasionally it was too busy and I haven't made enough money and, you know, da, 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 da. Um, but I really love this profession and it just sometimes makes me sad that, you know, it is deemed to be so hard um, and sometimes, um, I don't know, uh, really what I want to do is make it as easy for folk coming out now as I possibly can um which hasn't really answered your question I don't think but um no I well I but I think it the reason I'm sort of saying that is when I think back I don't know what your memories of you I think back to the memories of my first job mm-hmm. um where I worked in the PDSA in the east end of Glasgow and even when I moved to the PDSA in Gateshead so the first kind of three to four years of my practice I do remember it just, I don't know, it seemed more fun. Mm-hmm. It seemed, and I don't know why that, was yeah. it because I was a lot younger? Well, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have two children. Yeah. I didn't have, 
Andy to continue. You know, well, I did actually, but we were obviously, young, you know, it was a different time in our life because we were going on lots more holidays. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, a, it was certainly, again, can only speak for, well, me and friends, but it was a work hard, play hard you know we were blooming hard um but all the yeah the practice I worked in most of the vets were sort of ages with me um and certainly the nurses were so we would have you know long days and lots of nights and call but yeah Christmas parties were always a riot and you know we used to go you know so we'd go out after rugby matches and enters and stuff like that so yeah my I mean yes I suppose my life has has changed as well so it maybe is a combination yeah combination of things not that I would I'm not complaining about all those things but I just think it is it's maybe it is different for us all as we kind of move through Mm -hmm. as we move through our our kind of careers when you look at what you've done and obviously well I'll ask you about whether you would have done things differently and you've kind of already answered that but if you if you were putting you on the spot if you were to have chosen a different path what path might that have been oh that's a great question um in terms of the veterinary profession I probably wouldn't have done it necessarily any differently is that a way of saying I mean I suppose I suppose being where I am now if I had my time again and I was being logical would I have done you know more postgraduate education qualifications earlier in my career would have done a PhD but to be quite honest I don't think I would you know I, I don't think it, I would have been true to myself doing that type of thing is that something you would do now do you think or part of me would love to do a PhD just because I'd love to be able to say I've yeah. done a PhD but I, yeah. I'm realistic I'm old I'm getting on why can you can you be bothered <laughs> exactly <laughs> I know. And, uh, and that's yeah I, I think that's part of growing up actually I would dearly love to I know one of my son's English teachers who I think probably was ages with me now when he started did a part-time PhD over something like six or seven years and I'd take my hat off to him. I'd love to think I could, but actually, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's funny. I, it's funny. I don't know. Some of these, like I've had a similar thoughts actually about PhD. And, mm-hmm. and I do think that sometimes you age is just a number but then sometimes age kind of creeps into decision making because you're like oh I don't know about that I mean Uh maybe if I was 30 do you know I know I know I would maybe if I'd spared maybe if I'd spared days yeah yeah. I might because I now um, honestly that again I really it gives me the giggles as a student I think I missed the visit to the library at Glasgow Vet School sort of week one so therefore (laughs) never quite worked out how to do the library did you never go no no Which is quite tragic. I think I was search. I did, um, you know, Miller's Guide to Dissection of the Dog, and in practice, because that was the only thing I could access. Whereas now I have become that so interested in everything type. That you know, mm-hmm. somebody does ask a question, I always have to go now and look it up. But I think that's just a feature of age. I can't leave it alone. Oh gosh, that's you know, that's an interesting point. I've no idea. I. You know, I joke with the students, whether it's the nurses or the, the vet students, if somebody asks me a question, we don't know the answer. I know that I'll be the one going home at night and looking at them, whereas they'll mm. be the ones going and having a life. <laughs> one of the most frustrating things for interested people is that they don't have then the time to read around all the nuances. And actually, so one of the great joys, if you ever do get some time to sit down and actually just read and learn, I, I'm like, oh, this is this is joyous. You know, if I don't have the phone going and all that kind of stuff so actually me kind of buried away in this office now recording a podcast or reading a journal actually I get a a great amount of joy in that you know it's just it's just it's just finding the well it's just finding the time to do it isn't it so I know but actually there's there is great joy in that kind of knowledge Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely 
So I wanted to ask you, is there anyone, particularly within the profession, who has been of a particular inspiration to you in your career? Kind of nobody specific. There's lots of individual names that I'm, you know, coming to me. So Wendy Busby for years and years and years. Oh, you know. Wendy, yeah, the amazing yeah. Wendy. She and I got oh, together yeah. teaching, and um, she's just a force of nature. Isn't um, she? Yeah. 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 So. Oh, that's a great choice. That's a great choice. Yeah. yeah. So you know, Wendy. Um, I was really lucky to become friends with Louise O'Dwyer, laterally courtesy of Vets oh, Now, and again, yeah. and the time that I knew her, just incredible mm-hmm. as well um but you know there's so there's so many i could mm-hmm. i could list actually so, oh that was yeah. well, i think louise and wendy are two amazingly they are really good choices so that's good so i think we we always ask and you've really you've you've answered this question i think already but we do always specifically ask then if you could do this all again would you do veterinary medicine I think hand on heart, I would, yes, apart from that, you know, I would like to have, you know, we've got stair carpets that we've been needing to replace for 20 years, and I think we'll still need to replace them in 20 years. Are you blaming veterinary medicine for your terrible carpets? Well, <laughs> just never a spare penny. But apart, you know, apart from the financial side of things, no, yeah, no, I think I've been really lucky in, in my career. We're never going to be millionaires, are we? But I think, um, yeah, that's um, that's not going to happen, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> but as long as we can be happy. And then if you were to, I think particularly with your role and kind of teaching and, and, and you know, uh, I suppose uh, guiding younger professionals, uh, vets and nurses, if you were to give we try and limit it to one, but you can say more. But if you were to give one piece of advice to younger veterinary professionals, particularly students maybe that were listening, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I think I probably said it before, don't close any doors. You know, um, don't mm. pigeonhole yourself into something or be prepared to give everything a go. Actually, I'm going to give you lots of things. Um, yeah, do but it, yeah, do don't, don't close any doors. I think believe in yourself. I think that's the most important thing. Don't be too hard on yourself um, and enjoy it. Mm. You know, um, yeah. even though, you know, you'll be challenged, you work really hard, but there's no two ways about it. And that's that's what we have to do. But but enjoy. I, I meet so many young vet students now who have got such a defined idea, actually, of, of where they're going, like, you know, into a specific discipline. And, and and actually, I think it's really hard to honestly know completely at that stage um and and I you know not just Uh speaking from my own experience but yeah yeah yeah, you need to really live it first and 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 until you're actually doing it um you don't really know what it's all about I think I'm in awe of people that are that focused that know what they're going to do but I mean say that's only based on my own experience Mm -hmm. which is you know I've no idea where I'm going to be tomorrow but (laughs) as long as as well you can deal with if what you've gone into ends up not being the right decision how do you extricate yourself from that without it being the end of the world yeah and that's okay mm-hmm. oh absolutely yeah. yes I think that's the thing yeah. the message to get across try something give it a go and if it's not right yeah. be prepared to change or be open to the fact there's lots of other things there so just to confirm you currently still don't look beyond two weeks just keeping it quite um two weeks at a time <laughs> <laughs> yes do you know I wonder whether that's a better strategy Karen I think we should just yeah we're trying to look into the future too much let's take take a, a leaf out of Laura's book and just do two weeks at a time <laughs> I know I mean I know I'm teaching more than two weeks hence but in terms of <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> 
Welcome again to our, our lovely Liz, who's joining us today for our chat about calcium. We wanted to chat about calcium really off the back of our uh, live uh, calcium hypercalcemia webinar that's gone out just over the last few weeks, um, which was exciting stroke nerve wracking. Um, so yeah, so we just wanted to kind of highlight a few of the points, if that's okay, Liz. Yeah. Um, as I joked about before, I think it's, I feel a little bit sort of um, in the presence of calcium greatness when it comes to you, because that's what you did your kind of PhD on. But I know it was... Very uh, different, though. Yes, a very sort of specific kind of molecular <laughs> level stuff. So um, so today I, I wanted to highlight one of the main things that we kind of started when we're talking about calcium, whether we're talking about hypercalcemia or hypocalcemia, I think one of the main things that we need to be really mindful of in practice is the way that we measure it. And I think most people will be kind of be aware when you take bloods and you run a, a standard biochemistry through your sort of benchtop biochemistry machine, that measurement's going to be total calcium. And it's really yeah. important that we realize that that is not an accurate way of really measuring um, uh, calcium within our patients. So when we're measuring calcium, we can look at the total calcium, but there's lots of data to show that that will misrepresent the important uh, measure of calcium which is ionized calcium so really ionized calcium is the one that we have to measure as far as what is clinically useful from a diagnosis and from a treatment point of view and when we're talking about total calcium scott we're talking about the combined ionized and bound form aren't we for bound albumin yeah well exactly so so calcium really there's three ways which calcium appears in our body so we've got the ionized that kind of real uh, functional fraction um the uh, protein bound uh fraction and then the complex fraction so calcium can also kind of buddy up with other uh, molecules so those are the kind of three components and the one that we're really interested in is the ionized part um, and the slightly frustrating thing about that from from a practitioner point of view is that not everyone will have a machine that does ionized calcium in-house many of us will now and um and that was just one other kind of important thing that i wanted to mention because with ionized calcium, the only other slightly frustrating thing about it is that you have to be a little bit kind of careful about how you are storing and handling it if you're not going to measure it immediately. So the most useful way of measuring ionized calcium in-house is just to pretty much do it straight away. Because actually um, calcium, for lots of different reasons, doesn't like to be sitting around for ages and it will be affected by things like pH and also exposure to oxygen. So even I work with some some vets who are absolute purists when it comes to calcium measurement. Uh, I won't mention names, Liz, you know who I'm talking about. Um, and, and they will actually, when even if they're measuring calcium in-house, they will draw up calcium into pre-heparinized syringes, take out all the air bubbles and then measure it. So it really is sensitive to the way it's being uh, handled. So that's another important thing to to be kind of mindful of but there's no doubt that measuring calcium we really need to be looking at the ionized uh, part and so when you say we need to be careful about handling calcium mm. if we were to have to post it off mm. somewhere or courier it off somewhere 
is there a particular way we should be doing that or you know should we be filling those tubes completely full or how should we be doing it yeah so exactly so i think if you're going to do it and you can you can measure um typically when we're doing it in-house and we're doing it immediately we'll do it on heparinized samples you can measure um using serum tubes but you you have to do exactly that the tubes have to be filled uh, completely they, we have to be spinning these samples down if we're going to send them away um, and we have to be making sure that all the air is kind of extracted. What I would say though, uh, and this is always my mantra for everything when it comes to slightly tricky things like this, is I would just be very clear on what your lab wants. So if you are going to send it away, um, just make sure that you've had communication with which, whichever laboratory and any nuances of their machine or how they like to measure it are kind of taken away. So I would just be prepared. And it's the same with lots of finicky things like coagulation parameters and different things when you're sending them off. Just be prepared and make sure that the lab, you, you know what the lab want and then you're able to not kind of mess that um, mess that step up. So I think that's really important. Yeah, good tip. One of the reasons that we wanted to speak about calcium, actually, and one of the things that I wanted to highlight, particularly when we were chatting today, was to do, and it was one of our members, Emma, who asked really about the kind of emergency management of, of, of hypercalcemia. You know, we talk about finding hypercalcemia for lots of different reasons in our patients in the emergency setting. So in, in that, that initial presentation, when do you actually have to worry? Why do you have to worry? And what should you be doing about it? So I wanted to kind of chat through those things um, uh, today, really. I think as far as how high is too high, where you have to jump in immediately, it uh, depends on a couple of things. I think there's there's some reference to the fact that um, if you're sitting over 2.2 um, millimoles per litre of ionised calcium, then probably you want to be doing something about that. I think a lot of it depends on actually what's causing the hypercalcemia. Maybe talking through a couple of examples. So for instance, if you have a hypercalcemic patient who has been diagnosed with multicentric lymphoma and is hypercalcemic, then I would suggest that potentially the priority is treating the lymphoma. So starting that treatment of lymphoma is going to be almost certainly the way to get that calcium down. So do you start to, do you have to specifically start to get down the road of treating um, the calcium on as a standalone feature? No, because you're going to be treating the bigger picture and that's going to drive the calcium down. What I think is a good example of where you're almost certainly treating the calcium specifically would be a case of vitamin D toxicity. So where an animal has ingested some form of vitamin D and that has caused its calcium levels to go sky high. And I think we're seeing more and more of that, um, uh, particularly because more and more people are taking vitamin D as the, this kind of elixir of life. Recommended for COVID, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's been studies to show in humans that vitamin D probably helps you from lots of different things, uh, directions, as far as kind of um, making you feel a bit better. I was actually speaking to uh, Jack uh, Pye, who has been on the podcast before. He's a night worker and is starting to start to take vitamin D and says he feels like a <laughs> new man. And now I'm not making any medical recommendations, but um, what I'm saying is I think it's a more popular thing for people to have in the yeah. cupboard. And I've had a couple of cases recently where we've had just mass ingestion of, of a human supplementation. Yeah. 
Um, and that's certainly, in fact, recently, I think I mentioned this in the webinar, I had three border collies who had all just drank gallons of this, um, I think it was a sheep drench that contained vitamin D, vitamin A and something else um, and came in massively hypercalcemic. Wow. Um, and so I think what I kind of wanted to kind of um, speak a bit more specifically was the treatment of that. Um, and I kind of think of this as a kind of, I don't know, different tiers. Uh, for, for me, the first line sort of treatment always is going to be intravenous fluid yeah. therapy. Um, and specifically, we would use sodium chloride, 0.9% sodium chloride in these cases. Um, and that's not just because of promoting sort of diuresis and calciuresis or whatever the term would be, um, but also that specific effect that sodium will have on the handling of calcium in the kidney. So we're going to get rid of more calcium that way. I was actually, the one of the things that came up, you know, uh, always with a caveat with fluids, we've got to be careful about over perfusion and I suppose patients potentially with underlying cardiac disease things and Liz we just have to be cautious mm -hmm. um in our feline patients yeah it's always that decision making is always difficult because it has to be more than kind of maintenance I think but um we we kind of recommend two to four mils per kilogram per hour um as a kind of standard rate how common do you think cats are with hypercalcemia versus dogs there, it's a really interesting question, actually, because they're a kind of different population. When we're talking about like acute, crazy hypercalcemia to do with vitamin D ingestion, it's going to be dogs because dogs do things that cats don't do. I think that that highlights a really interesting point, which is that yeah. cats and their kind of um, presentation of hypercalcemia is a bit different because actually a large percentage of them will be these idiopathic hypercalcemia. Uh, cases that treat that that require more chronic treatment so yeah. they tend to not be kind of hostilized necessarily in that same way that dogs are in the more emergency setting so a lot of the dogs that we see in hypercalcemic crises are either neoplastic or vitamin d toxicity the other kind of major category of dogs that will present will be dogs with primary hyperparathyroidism mm -hmm. But actually, the interesting thing about primary hyperparathyroidism is that they often are quite vague and will present almost as incidental type findings. So they, they don't always present in that kind of emergency way. But, you yeah, know, cats are a kind of totally different, I suppose, population in this kind of case. So fluids is always the first thing, two to four mils per kilogram of sodium chloride. I think for me, the next line of treatment, and I'm not sure it's hard to, to say which one is better or worse, are, are using one of two drugs so either fruzamide uh, or dexamethasone um, and again both of these ultimately are going to be promoting getting rid of more calcium particularly in your urine uh, ultimately and as far as which one of those drugs I would choose next um, I suppose a little bit again would depend on what the underlying problem is what what other drugs the animal's on? Yeah, uh, dexamethasone. If there is an underlying neoplastic cause, we always run the risk of maybe if we give too much steroid, we kind of mask the ability that to then maybe diagnose that lymphoma. So we just have to be a wee bit careful of that. Obviously, there are other drugs that will not react well with dexamethasone, so we have to be careful with that. Fruzamide, I think. Well, I mean, you'll use fruzamide longer term a lot more than I will. But I said, how much do we worry about kind of dehydrating a patient or in the emergency setting 
I suppose these patients are not in heart failure, so they they would be at higher risk of potentially becoming dehydrated or well it depends on how much freezing mide you use i guess i mean i don't know what would your starting dose be that you would go to freeze mide i would probably do about a mig per kg. yeah so i mean our starting dose is two mgs per kg, and our patients are volume loaded aren't they so i think exactly i mean so, you've yeah. got an animal that's on fluids anyway yes yeah. probably yeah. is dehydrated to some extent with hypercalcemia but you know a mig per kg of freeze mide I wouldn't worry about that too much. No, exactly. So that would be, yeah, so a mig or between a mig and two migs per keg of frusamide or, um, uh, uh, you know, a dexamethasone. Just to go back to the dexamethasone point, Scott, you said, oh yeah, you know, I suppose you're not going to be reaching for dexamethasone necessarily straight away. So you can put your your dog on fluids um, and then mo- monitor it that way and then get the samples maybe to look for lymphoma as a possibility and then if you need to give dexamethasone once you've as long as you've collected those samples initially then I suppose there's less of a risk of using dexamethasone is that right? Yes that's true and I think what harm has ever one dose of dexamethasone done anyone I mean you know I think that's I think it's probably repeated Mm -hmm. doses if you've got lymphoma you're not going to not have lymphoma well, maybe someone called. No, you're not going to not have lymphoma yeah. after one dose of Dex. Like it's just not going to happen. So, so no, I think you're right. I think it's it's um yeah you you're this is all part of a bigger picture. And it, as I said at the beginning, it totally depends on what the un- what you suspect the underlying problem is. You know, so yes, you'll you'll be doing other things and collecting other samples. But I think probably is kind of after that kind of standard of care fluid therapy, those two drugs kind of are at the same tier of um when and how we would sort of use them but it'll be a bit case dependent on on what drug you potentially uh choose and i suppose how your patient responds if you start with some frusamide and fluids and it doesn't lower the calcium then obviously you need to consider other other options Mm -hmm. the the third and sort of and really the other only reasonable and accessible choice for managing hypercalcemia in practice are uh, bisphosphonates uh, so drugs like alledronate zeledronate pimidronate are all options uh, for that a lot of the kind of f- initial human stuff and animal stuff was to do with uh, pimidronate but actually zeledronate is thought to be a lot more effective and mm-hmm. has been used a lot more recently in human uh, medicine and so we are using a lot more uh, zeledronate. Zeledronate and pimidronate can both be given intravenously and are given with usually with saline infusions. But you, uh, we, you know, there's no point kind of uh, verbalizing that now. You can just to double check exactly how to administer because that's really important. Alledronate's not so commonly used in the emergency setting because alledronate's usually an oral medication, and actually it's most commonly used for the more chronic treatment of feline idiopathic hypercalcemia so we would normally use that more in that kind of setting but certainly um especially with these really severe vitamin d toxicity that that i was talking about recently we use the legionate actually in combination with iv fluids and dexamethasone and frusamide in order to lower these uh, dogs calcium levels and and found that that was really um was very effective and I would say that was kind of tier three, you know, so if you're kind of working through these different medications with the the border collies that I spoke about and, and the reason actually that that I suppose 
for me, they're a really great case. So we, we used all of those sorts of therapies. But the other big question is, but why, you know, why do we have to be proactive? And this, these cases taught me that because mm-hmm. one of these border collies, although we very successfully reduced the calcium, I thought relatively promptly, he then went on to develop very severe respiratory uh, signs, was oxygen dependent for days. Yeah. Um, and we really, through extensive investigation of respiratory problems, were not able to get to the bottom of why he was so respiratory compromised and oxygen dependent. It was only on post-mortem examination where actually it was determined there was um, microscopic, we, we couldn't see this on imaging, but there was calcification. Well, I say we couldn't see it on imaging. He had a sort of generalized interstitial pattern, but it was only on post-mortem examination that we found that there was calcification of the airways. So um, it was really um, a really interesting case because it certainly taught me that there was the reason you have to be proactive about the calcium is because it can be it really can be doing damage to your organs. And you mentioned, Liz, you know, it can have um, it can cause renal uh, insufficiency. It can, but it can, it can, it can complex and deposit in any body organ. So the moral of my story is we need to be proactive about getting it down in these cases where it is. And again, I hate to use kind of cutoff figures, but above you yeah. know, 2.2 millimoles per litre ionized, we just need to be taking that seriously because that is going to be causing problems and not always ones that we can visibly see. And how did the border collies present to you? Did they, or to the referring vet? They were seen, well, it's quite, it's quite sad, actually, the whole thing. So there was actually four of them and they became very lethargic with PUPD. One of them actually passed away on the way to the vet clinic. Oh. The other one developed very severe cardiac abnormalities arrhythmias and passed away in the vets wow and then the other two came to us as a referral and sadly only one of them because the the one that developed the dyspnea we we sadly put to sleep and how high was their an ionized calcium when they presented to you it varied so the the um 3.2 wow and 2.9 i think so i mean high that's really high, isn't it? Yeah, when you think about um, the grand scale of hypercalcemia. So, and I hate—I always hate to talk about these cases as interesting. I, I, interesting is not the right word, but well, I mean, it is in some ways, but it's—it's it's obviously very sad. But you know, genuinely, from a and I, I really, really great that the owner consented for postmortem. As sad as that is, as well, because actually, this is truly one of those cases where not only well I'll learn from it but but lots of other people hopefully will and, and actually we're, we we probably will publish that um because although it is documented in the veteran literature I think it was last documented in the 80s or something so I think it's worth kind of bringing back to people's attention especially as vitamin D is becoming more popular so uh, definitely something it's really definitely something worth highlighting <music> So, yeah, so I hope that's helpful just to kind of um, we've kind of just picked out a few of the salient points from from our from the, the webinar. But actually, the, the hypercalcemia webinar is still available on the website, which you can all actually watch for free. Um, so that is still available. Uh, and I'll put the information about that in the show notes. So thanks, Liz. Nice to chat today always. 
and hopefully we can um continue to do more of our little Liz and Scott chats actually I'm quite getting into this a massive thank you to all of you for listening this week we really appreciate your ongoing support to find out more about VTX and also to watch our free hypercalcemia webinar head over to our website which is www.vtx-cpd.com thank you again for all of your support and we look forward to seeing you next time